0: Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 23. So, as I usually say at this point in time, we're moving along pretty uh, pretty quickly here. I think I went back, uh, I'm not sure whether it was this show or not, but I calculated, and we have a total of, uh, I think mathematically, of 32 shows that we're going to be doing So uh, we're getting pretty close, uh, if you will, to uh, not that many more. We're past the the halfway point well on to the two-thirds of the way point to uh, finishing up the class. So what we want to talk about today is I want to continue on talking about the appraisal basics. My intention is to pick up where we left off the last time, which was talking about the lots in a subdivision, and how they are laid out, and how you could essentially take the same house, and depending upon what lot you put on, uh, it on, could ha- change the value of the f- of the property. So the concept is, I have a house. You know, maybe I've spent three hundred thousand dollars worth of materials and labor to build it, and if I put it on one lot, it's worth a certain amount of money. If I put it on another lot, it's worth a different kind of a money. Part of that is going to be just the increased cost. Of the lot itself because it happens to be a larger piece of property or a smaller piece. But the other thing is going to be the desirability. In other words, where is this house located within the community? Is it close to noise, away from the noise? Is it in a cul de sac? Is it a T lot? What is it? So we're going to be talking about that. I'm going to do a quick review of where we were the last time with that. We'll be talking about some other things you need to be considering when you're looking at the lots. We're then going to move on to just showing you some good and bad designs for lots. Some of these are fairly dramatic or drastic. I am going to speak a little bit about where I think it's important for you to know the various structural components of a home. The reason why is because you as an appraiser or you as a real estate agent are going to be getting reports, for example, in the area of termite or pest control or home inspection reports, and they're going to be talking about possible defects within the house and they're going to be calling out certain parts of the structure so it's really kind of important even so you're not getting up there and hammering on it or sawing on it or something that you know what they are and what they're talking about. Uh, After that we're going to move on and we're going to be talking about the different what we call principles, certain economic principles that affect the value of property that real estate appraisers look at when they're appraising, and so we want to talk about those. And then finally, if time allows, I want to take you to the Office of Real Estate Appraisers website and show you that website. There is a link within the Blackboard website under web links for this chapter, so you'll have an idea of where to go to find out information such as what are the requirements for you to become an appraiser, There are certain new requirements that are going to be effective as of uh, the year 2008, so I want to show you where those happen to be, just so you're fully informed. And as I usually say, my objective whenever I'm teaching a class like this is to sort of make you independent so that in the end you can fire me and go take somebody else, but so that you can work on your own, if you will. So what I'm going to be doing here in a second is just moving over to my old friendly document camera, and then we're going to go ahead and move from there. Uh, the last time that we met, we talked about this diagram. Just to refresh your memory, we talked about these lots are, this would be fairly example of a, of a typical subdivision, that there are differences between the lots. In other words, the same con- conceptual idea you want to think about is, in other words, you know, take the same house and put it on different lots, and it can have different values. We talked about uh, lot A, the advantages to that. It was a cul-de-sac. Uh, typically in the front you have don't have that much property so for those of us that are concerned about mowing lawns that's really good news in the back you have a fairly large yard so you know people can have things for example maybe like a pool and and you know like a little bag mitten place or a place for kids to play and so there's quite a bit of room back there also because it's in a cul-de-sac there's not very much traffic normally the only people that are going down here are people that are living in that area or people that in some cases have made a mistake and gone down the wrong streets. But we don't have a lot of traffic going up and down through here. So people like that, especially if they have children, uh, because I think I've mentioned to you before, people are really, really concerned about the safety of their children and the safety of their pets and and things like that to make sure they're going to be okay in the community. So that might be a very valuable uh, property to somebody. Uh, B is a corner lot. Corner lot has certain advantages and disadvantages. To some people, I like to say that they might be a show-off. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the fact is you will see that a lot of people that are on that lot are going to have a lot of green area to maintain, a lot of flowers, a lot of stuff to really make it really look nice. It's possible that, for example, right in here, you could have where somebody may have access to store something back here because you can go down the street and maybe have gates where you can get in things like an RV or a boat, depending upon the size of a lot. There's a lot of advantages. To me, the disadvantages to it would be, for example, depending upon the neighborhood where you live, you may have people that will walk across your lawn all the time, walk across to take the shortcut. Uh, it's for some reason when you're going from one street to the other, you find people doing things like that, and so that can be a little bit aggravating to people. Uh, lot C, as they mentioned in the book here, lot C is a lot that's more or less an interior lot, but one of the probably the disadvantages are is that you have a number of neighbors. So you have one, two, three, four neighbors that you have. Was that one, two, three, four neighbors you have to con, uh, contend with? So, you could possibly end up with anywhere between four and five different kinds of fences. Uh, every time somebody moves, you know, so, so again, people, there's people that like that concept, people that don't like it. Uh, CDD is a lot here. The disadvantage to this lot here is that it's right in the high traffic area. It's also in an area where if you have a stop sign here and somebody inadvertently loses their brakes or maybe is drinking a little bit too much and misses the stop sign, they could go right into the front of your house. And uh, it's very more susceptible for people that have children. They're concerned about the kids getting hurt. Uh, also, and I think of, I can think of, and I'm sure you can, a lot of places that you've come down to this type of an intersection and notice that the lights your, your lights are shining in the people's home on a regular basis, and typically in the front of a lot of these homes you'll see things like living rooms, places where family families gather together and it just gets to be noisy and there's always that concern about uh, about traffic that was de is usually considered to be uh, a fairly good lot you have you don't have the traffic going in both ways. It's usually fairly close to the cul-de-sac, so hopefully you don't get a lot of people coming and going out of there. And then we talked about Lot F. F is what we call a flag lot. It's usually in the area where it's very thin in the front. It's one of those places where you drive down a long driveway and you get in the back and you say, my goodness, I had no idea there was a house there that was that big. Uh, Again, advantages and disadvantages. But the point is, is that you always need to look at the lot. The size of the lot. Let me just say a couple things. You want to look at the size of the lot. You want to look at the view. In other words, what sort of a view do you get with the lot? Uh, you can have uh, lots, uh, like, for example, on the street where I live, right across the street on the same street, my neighbors on the other side of the street. Some of them paid as much as a $300,000 premium. In other words, in addition to their house, to get a lot because that lot has a beautiful view of the Sacramento Lights and Folsom Lake. Okay, $300,000 extra. So that's something that one has to consider. Do you have a view of some sort that you have that's a beautiful view? People, people, people will pay a lot of extra money for that. Okay. Uh, you also want to be concerned with a lot things such as drainage. You know, uh, uh, you know. in other words, does it drain well or do the, does the water kind of congregate or, or get close to the house, which usually will typically mean that you're going to have water intrusion into the house. It may get underneath the foundation. Another thing people are concerned about, slope is a big thing. Uh, I had a house that I had for a number of years. I had for 18 years. I bought the house, me, Pat, because I thought it was really neat. It set up high. It was up on a hill. And I had this beautiful view of, Sacrament, of the, of the uh, Sierra Mountains, really nice view. used to sit up there, especially when I first had the house, up there at night, you know, have a glass of wine, a soda, a cup of coffee, and just look at it. It was just really pretty. Uh, lived there, enjoyed it, thought everybody else did. Got ready to sell the house, and because it was on a slope, I quickly found out that people that have children do not like buying houses that are on a hill because what happens is they're concerned about the kids having a ball roll down in the street, and they're going to chase the ball, and the kids are going to get hit. They'll also take a look at it, and they'll turn around and say, you know what, if I live you know, if I live in that house, I have to walk up and down the driveway all the time. Now, when you live in a house like that, usually a lot of times you hit the garage door open or pull in the garage, you're done. But people will visualize that they've got to park the car in front of the house and walk up the stairs. And so typically that will be a detrimental to people that are usually older. Because they'll say, you know what, I move in here now, and yeah, can I get up and down, and can, you know, can I get up and down? Yes, uh, I, you know, I need my mailboxes out front. I'm going to have to walk down there in the morning to get the mail and walk back up again. I can do that now, but can I do it in the next four or five years? You know, I'm getting older, it's a little bit hard, or I may have some sort of form of a disability. So that can be a detrimental while it may have a beautiful view, it may be detrimental to the sale of the property. So you have to look at all of those things. Consider all of them when you're looking at a piece of property. Very, very important. Uh, going on from there, let me just see. One of the things that they do do is they talk about a depth table here, and I just wanted to sort of uh, – this is what the depth table looks like, Okay. And what we're talking about here is that we have a street that's right here. This is the front, and then these are lots that are going towards the back of the property. Where you're going to see something like this that's going to affect the value is a lot in commercial areas. And I'm going to read this, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. It says, uh, let me see, size, shape, okay, let me see. It says lots or parcels can be subdivided in almost any shape imaginable but most lots are rectangular in front onto the street any lot that is valuable if it I'm sorry any lot is valuable if it offers enough area to build a house that is compatible with the surroundings in general the more land or frontage on the street the higher the value of the land an example of, depth, of a depth table will explain the concept. A depth table is a percentage table that illustrates how the highest value is located in the front part of the lot. And then they're talking about this figure here. They say figure 10 4 is an example of a 4321 depth table. The 4321 depth is best used by appraisers to determine the value of the commercial properties on which the lots vary in depth. Probably the way that I would like to have you think about this is that if we are talking about commercial properties, think about the fact that when you have any kind of a business, I don't care, again, if it's one of my favorite businesses, which are ice cream parlors, donut shops, and coffee shops, or it's an auto parts store or any kind of a store, part of the reason why people will locate that store close to the street is because there's a lot of traffic going by. And when there's a lot of traffic going by, there's a good possibility that they will get some of their customers from that traffic. And I'll go into that in a second. The further back from the street your business happens to be or the property you happen to have, less the less value it actually has. So that's why, for example, you will usually see businesses that, re- that really heavily depend on, for example, t- traffic such as convenience stores, auto parts stores, donut shops, coffee shops, laundromats, liquor stores, anything that gets where the people can say, you know what, I found that store just by driving past. You'll usually find that those are what's located up front. If you're in a complex, you'll usually find you're not going to put an office out there, unless it's an office that depends upon traffic. What would be an office that would depend upon traffic? Something like an H&R Block Tax Preparation Service. You know, they need, they have a certain time of the year, and they need to have people go by. A real estate office would be something that would want to be located close because maybe it may, uh, for example, if you go down to, um, um, I'm trying to think of it right now, Carmel, and you go down Ocean Street in Carmel, which is the street that goes right down the middle of Carmel, right down to the ocean, you walk down and you see these real estate offices that will have pictures of houses that are for sale with the prices on them. They, believe it or not, heavily depend upon that to generate traffic or interest in the area because there's so many people that by foot will walk down that street and look in those windows. So they heavily depend upon that. Now the places where you would put businesses that don't heavily depend upon that would be, for example, a dentist office, okay, would be in the back. An attorney's office would be in the back. An accountant's office would be in the back. So typically, offices are what we put in the back. We Those people do not generate traffic or business by people driving past them. It's usually based on referral. It's based on happy clients. It's based on phone book ads. It's based on things like that. So consequently, just think about that. And all I really want to say is when you drive around the community, just Sort of open your eyes, and it's amazing if you just know about this and start observing and say, hmm, now I understand why they put that business there. I can understand why that's more valuable. I can understand why the insurance office is in the back and not in the front. Okay? As an example, another example, I remember uh, I was going to one of my favorite places one day, Dairy Queen, out in, uh, oh, out near uh, Folsom. Uh, and I noticed when I was getting, uh, getting ready to leave there, I remember that I needed a bulb for my taillight or something. Something had gone. And so as I'm pulling out of the parking lot, I noticed right across the street, which I had maybe you had noticed but never dawned on me, there was an auto parts store there. So what I did is I crossed the street, pulled into their parking lot, and went and got the bulb. Now, the reason why I did that is because they were easy to see from the street. They had a sign up there that they are in the auto parts business. If they were behind someplace else, I would have never known. I would have driven right by them. Okay, so that's why the, it's more valuable in that particular location, just so you know. Uh, moving, let me see. They do talk about some really extreme lot designs here. And uh, I think I kind of want to, let me see if I can blow these things up Uh some of this, you may say, this looks absolutely absurd and ridiculous. I have no idea why anybody would ever develop a piece of property that looked like this. Now, I'm not saying that you've ever seen anything like this, or, you know, but I'll tell you, a lot of times when you go out and look at property, at raw ground, or even at houses, you'll go, why in the world did they ever situate the house that way? Why in the world did they ever split the property that way? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, you may also find out that there are properties, the, the one on the bottom will show you, where they're thin. And the reason why is because at that point in time, maybe the houses weren't that large. Now they're larger. You know, It's really crazy. But anyway, what they're trying to do is say, if you have a piece of property, both of these are exactly the same size. This would be a good design. This would be a poor design. In fact, when you hire a licensed civil engineer and a land surveyor to help you split property, besides them getting out there and doing a lot of measurements and a lot of calculations and a lot of stuff like that, one of the things that you're hiring those people for is for their expertise in knowing how to best design the land or to design the lot, how to best lay it out. Also so that the county or the city or whoever the the government wherever the property is located will buy off and say, hey, that's a really good design. This is a good design because we're basically doing the same number of lots, but we're getting very there you're taking the same chunk of land, but you're getting larger chunks of property that people can build reasonable houses on. Here, under this this lot, you'd have to have a teensy weensy skinny little house. Uh, that would maybe not even sit this way, would have to sit this way. Have I ever seen anything like this? Yes. I've seen many, many times properties. I've, have I seen them in Sacramento? Yes. And you just go, you look at it, and you go, why? What were they thinking? And many times it can be the fact that they just happened to be able to acquire the land. That's what they did. They just got it. Maybe somebody gave it to them. It fell out of the sky. Or maybe it was a house that was there for a number of years, and they rehabilitated it, and they made it a little bit bigger. And you go, why did they do it that way? It just doesn't make any sense. But you will see property like that, and that's going to affect the value of it. Very, very important. It's going to affect the value of it. Um, let me see. We'll go from here. Okay. Um, a couple of things that I want to point out as far as terms go, just so you know when you hear these what they basically mean. Let me see if I can go through this. Okay. See if I can get this zoomed in correctly here. Okay. What we're talking about is improvements here. Okay, and see, I have to get this right for the class here, improvements. Okay. And the reason why I'm doing this is so that you know what these terms are when you hear them. Okay. Real estate is logically divided into land, which we call the site okay, the site where we're going to put the property, but real estate is divided into land, site, and improvements. Improvements are any buildings, walkways, pools, or other structures, okay? So anything that you've done to improve it, in other words, putting a pool in, putting a sidewalk in, putting a small little uh, shed in the backyard for a tool shed, um, you know, whatever it happens to be, that's some kind of hopeful improvement. Now, you know, sometimes improvements are in the eyes of the beholder. Sometimes people will go, you know, that shed you have in the back is actually detrimental to the property. And I think if you really want to go to value, what you need to do is knock it down, get it out of here, put some grass over the top of it. But that's, again, you know, maybe something that you, uh, you would talk about. Capital improvements are permanent improvements made to increase the useful life of the property, increase the property's value. They stay with the property. These include off site improvements such as streets, utilities, and on site improvements buildings. Now, there's always, you always hear about things such as off site improvements and on site improvements. And the concept that you want to keep in mind when we talk about on site, we talk about physically on your property. That's an on site improvement. So, house, structure, uh, fences, pools, gazebos, lawns, sidewalks, all on that physical lot are on-site improvements. The house itself, the building itself. Off-site improvements would be the things that you use to service the property. So that would be streets, curbs, gutters, drainage systems, water supplies, electricity, uh, cable TV lines, phone lines, power lines, telephone poles, those are all off-site improvements. The reason why we distinguish between those is because just if you stay with me on this, is that if we take a piece of land from raw ground, and typically when I refer to raw ground, I usually mean it's coming out of the use for agriculture, either to grow crops or to graze animals like horses and cows, or it could just be like we see out on Highway 50, and we go, you know, hey, you know, nobody's built there, and you know, you know, there's nothing there. You know, oh, wait a minute, a lot of that property is used for grazing, by the way. Okay. So what happens is, is before we build a house, the process that has to happen is, is that we hire a civil engineer. Uh, that engineer knows what they're doing. You know, We're hiring them because they know. We usually either they're doing the surveying or they have somebody do the surveying. They lay out the map, where, in other words, where the houses are going to go, where the streets are going to go, the curbs, the gutters. They do all that. They actually assist you if you're the developer in getting it all approved by the county or the city, depending upon where the property is located. Once it's been approved and it's recorded as a legal description, so we now have lots, we may still have the cows grazing on the property. We may still be growing the wheat. Now, the first thing before we build the house, though, what we have to do is do what we call the off-site improvements. So that may be at the stage where you're going to be driving around the community and notice that there's a bunch of bulldozers, a bunch of trenchers. They're digging holes. They're laying cable. They're coming in and putting streets in. They're putting gravel in. They haven't built a house yet, by the way. This is called, and maybe they get all done with it, and you see a couple cables sticking up out of the ground, and the sidewalks are in, but there's no houses built. Those are the off-site improvements. Okay? The on-site improvements happen when all of a sudden the builder comes along and starts building on those lots. Now, that developer, typically called a real estate developer, that built that subdivision and put those lots in, usually will either then build the houses or they will turn around and sell that project to a builder, such as Dunmore Homes, H.C. Elliott, somebody like that, Woodside Homes. They'll buy the lots, they'll have their models and their plans, and they'll build the houses. Okay, So I just want to distinguish between what we mean by off-site improvements, which are streets, curbs, gutters, power, cable, and all that, and on-site improvements, which is house, swimming pool, outbuildings, tool sheds, things like that, okay? Let me see if I can finish up what this says. Uh, I think this reiterates it. Uh, these include off-site improvements, streets, utilities, on-site improvements, buildings. Off-site improvements are the improvements made to areas adjoining the parcel that add to the parcel's usefulness and sometimes its value. In fact, I would say most of the time it's value. Examples of off-site improvements include streets, streetlights, sewers, sidewalks, curbs, and gutters. These items generally add value to the urban property but may be of little value in rural areas, okay? Which I don't know necessarily know how true that is. If you've put all that in there, your intention normally is to build a subdivision or a house. In fact, usually people that have, you know, a property in a rural area, real rural area, uh, will maybe have large par- uh, par- parcels of land, and what they'll do is they'll get together with their neighbors and actually make streets, put streets in. And so, you know, if they had already had that in, it would be really nice for them. And usually not, not only do they have to put them in, but they have to get together and keep them up all the time. Um, off-site improvements are usually paid for by the homeowners through the levying of special tax assessments, which we'll talk about in the future. That's like property taxes, Generally, that helps maintain or mellow or prop, or bond issues that help uh, build those. On the other hand, on-site improvements are structures erected permanently for the use on a site such as buildings and fences. Okay, so that, just so you understand the, the difference between the two of them. Very important, because you'll hear, you'll hear that you're building a subdivision. They'll say, hey, they're working on the off-site improvements. Okay, we're not ready for construction yet on the houses because they're still working on the off-site stuff. Okay, And all you have to do to see off-site improvements is just drive around any one of these communities. Just get out of Sacramento, go down to Elk Grove, Natomas, get out Highway 50, go up to uh, Placer County up near Roseville. You're going to see plenty of off-site work that's being done. Okay, the next thing that we want to talk about is, uh, and I'm going to jump a little bit here, and that is we want to talk about the structure of the house. And I'm not going to spend much time on this, But I do think that it is very, very, very important that a real estate professional understands what this stuff is. And the reason why I say that is because of the fact that you, as a real estate professional, are going to be getting reports. You're going to be getting termite reports where the termite inspector has said something like, you know, the barge rafter has dry rot. Okay, or the mud sill is, uh, there's something wrong with the mud sill, or the floor joist has got water damage, you know, and you're going to say, what in the world are they talking about? Where are these components? And uh, so what's good is that you understand what it is that these components are, so you can more or less, and you you will be involved with these, by the way. You'll talk about them in discussion topics. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples so that you're familiar with what this stuff really is. And where do you usually see this come up? You'll see it in a home inspector's report, okay, when you order a home inspection where they're going to find some kind of a defect and they're going, to, they're going to say this needs to be corrected, or you're going to see it in a termite inspection report. Those are the two reports you'll see it. But a couple things I want to point out that you'll need to know about is, and as they point out, and you probably, I would recommend, you know, if you're really interested in this, is to go out, take something like this, and go out onto some of the newer subdivisions. And on a weekend, walk around and try to locate some of these things, mainly so the fact that you can talk the lingo with the people. Okay. So basically what's happening here is I'll just point out a couple things here. These things that are going up on the roof that meet in the top, these are called rafters, okay? rafters roof rafters. This thing that's going across the uh, top, Okay, it's called the it's called the ridge board. That's where the rafters tie into. Okay? Nowadays, most of these things are called trusses and they're made usually in a lumberyard. They're delivered on a flatbed truck and they're put up by a crane. And the reason why they do that is because they can engineer them with less use of wood. Okay? Uh, be, uh, you know, you'll see, for example, something that was built in the past with maybe great big 2x10s might be built with 2x6s or 2x4s you know, because of the fact that they can engineer them better. They're not built on site. They're built in a factory. They're not warped. They're not bent. In fact, uh, there is more of been a movement of actually, in some cases, my house, which they built, they actually go to the lumberyard and have things like wall. They'll take the plans to the lumberyard and say build the walls at the lumberyard. Then they put them on a flatbed truck, they mark them, and they deliver them to the site. And what happens is is that when they get ready to build that, what they do when they build the house nowadays is they lay the foundation out, you know, they get all the bolts, you know, all the lag bolts that are holding the, the walls up, they deliver these things on a flatbed truck, and what happens is they put two or three or four guys out there, and they go and they grab a hold of these walls, and they hoist them up and walk over and drop them right on top of the bolts, bolt them all down. They can actually start... The concept is is that you're getting economies of scale, you have very little waste, you're building them in a place where you, you don't have to worry about wood twisting and turning. And for those of us that have done that, I mean, I can remember building a deck and hearing the wood sitting in the driveway cracking, you know, when it was like 100 degrees out as the water is getting absorbed out of it. So a, it's a very good way of constructing. So you'll see that happen, by the way. Uh, a couple things that you'll see here in Sacramento, this area that goes, around this, uh, that goes around this pipe that goes up here, which is not a chimney, by the way, that's called a vent pipe. Uh, you may not realize this, but in your home, uh, for your, it's kind of like the old thing, like if you took a bottle and turned it upside down, uh, you could actually hold it and the liquid wouldn't come out. And the reason why is because there's no vent, there's no air on the other side of it. So your, your plumbing system needs to have a vent pipe. And so that's what that is, and then that metal light goes around it as a flashing so that when the water comes down, it doesn't get into the inside of the house. This kind of a roof that you see situated here is typically this thing called open sheathing. It's usually associated with uh, shake roofs. What will happen is that you'll have, if you drive along, you'll see where they'll have like a board, Uh, Typically, a lot of these are made out of one-by-fours, and then they'll have a space, and then another one-by-four, and a space, and another one-by-four. And what they'll do is you'll have that down. The next thing that'll go down on top of that is something called building paper. It looks black in color. We sometimes call that tar paper. And then on top of that, we will have something called shingles, and usually we'll put, uh, if we're talking about a shake roof, there'll be wooden shingles. And by the way, for your own information, the wooden shingles don't do anything to keep the water out of the house. What they do is they keep the sun off the building paper so the building paper doesn't crack and allow the water to go in. So in reality, that, the, the, re, and the reason why I point that out is that if you are building a house, I'm sorry, if you're living in a house, especially if you have an older shake roof, and what will happen is is that maybe you've lived there a number of years, you may not have realized this, but the shake roofs, I mean, it's kind of funny. I see these large windstorms come along, and you can drive down the street and you see shingles laying in the street or shakes. Well, every time one of those shingles flies off the roof, what it does is it exposes part of that tar paper. The tar paper is not very, doesn't do well with the sun. So what happens is the sun f- comes down on top of the tar paper. They have actually put a chemical into the tar paper or to the building paper to make it flexible. What the sun does is it takes that out. What it does is it reverts back to its natural state, which is harder. That's the same example, not to, you know, go on about this, but that's the same example why, for example, if you have a dashboard in a car and one year it looks great and then all of a sudden it starts cracking and falling apart, it's because that dashboard, that that material on top of it has something in it called a plasticizer. And what it does is it reverts back to its hard state, and then when you go over bumps, it starts to crack because of vibration. Well, the house will do the same thing as the tar paper gets... Uh, gets harder than any kind of movement that you may not even be able to perceive. Any kind of movement or vibration will start that paper cracking and finally separate, and then it'll start raining. And usually, what'll happen is you'll know, the first time you notice that is all of a sudden, especially if we get like a very heavy rain, like in an October. And the reason why is because the shakes have been had the sun on them the whole time. Every single ounce of water that they could possibly get out of them has been sucked out of them by the sun. And now, all of a sudden, you get this deluge of rain. The shake hasn't had enough time to absorb the water, and it gets in between where the tar paper is or the building paper, and the inside of the house leaks. Okay, That's a long story, but that's basically what causes that to happen. That's why having, especially on an older roof, why you want to have a good roof inspection to make sure, because they're not cheap, by the way. Uh, Roofs to replace are not cheap, because in this particular case, if I was going to do this roof here, I would probably... The engineer would tell me that I would have to take and probably make, uh, maybe maybe from now on, maybe they wouldn't even allow me where I live to have shakes because they have really fire. They're terrible. I mean, one little, little, bitty spark, and those things will practically explode in the summertime. So they're a fire hazard. Why we allowed them to happen in Sacramento, I have no idea. They're, where they work well is where you have a high moisture area, where you have more water. <laughs> not, when, not when it dries out totally in the summer, and it just fills up with water in the winter. Uh, but if you're going to – your engineer, though, if you're going to put a, uh, a normal um, uh, composition roof on there, they're going to probably – not probably, but what they'll do is they'll require you to take that, that sheathing off and put on uh, probably four-by-eight sheets of plywood – or if you're going to put on tile, which is extremely heavy, they're going to require you to do that. And they also may have you put some more structure on there. Just I'm just throwing this in because I think it's important for you to know about it. Um, anyway, so you will want to know what some of these other things are, such as the joists. Okay, um, Some of the things that we're talking about in here, these vertical members here are called studs. The uh, horizontal member that's in between, sometimes we call these cats, but they're called fire stops. The intention of that is if the fire comes up here is to actually prevent the fire from going further up. We usually run into these after we've built the house. In other words, they're required to be there, but we usually run into them when we're trying to put an electric, electricity or something in. We go and drill, start to drill, and all of a sudden find out we hit a, uh, a fire break or fire stop. And there's ways to get around it. There's these really fancy, flexible drills that are got to be about five and six feet long that you use to drill through that cat to get the wire through. But anyway. anyway, so it's a good idea that you know what all these terms are. They really are because you're going to be standing there shaking your head with the building inspector or with the home inspector or the termite person as they're explaining it to you. What is your concern? Why do you want to know about it? Because your deal may fall apart... <laughs> If you can't get these things fixed, when the termite inspector says your joists, your floor joists are rotten and it's going to cost you $20,000, that may stop your deal. You want to know about that. Or if you've got a bad roof and you need to you know, possibly replace it, you want to know about that. So very important stuff. Um, they give you that and then they also give you on this page just a brief description of the various terms that you would need to know what they are. And again, you're going to run into these on a regular basis. So they're, these tie back to the numbers that are in the book. And again, uh, if you want to know why I know something about this, it's because I've done construction <laughs> and I've built stuff so I understand what it is or I've modified it. But going out to a brand new, uh, a brand new subdivision will really help you understand what these components are. Uh, I also think uh, there's some other terms in here that you need to know about, such as uh, bearing wall, board feet, BTUs, all these other kinds of terms are really good to know, okay, so that you understand what's really um, what's going on. Um, I also think it's a good idea that if you have a home inspection or a termite inspection and you happen to have an opportunity to meet and just talk and discuss what happened during that inspection, it's a good idea. It's a good educational. In fact, I would say it's a good idea to have a home inspector as a friend. In fact, have a home inspector and a termite inspector as a friend because they can help you out in understanding what these problems really are so you can explain them to clients. Okay. Um, I'm trying to see if there's any other things in here. Okay. Now, the next thing that we want to talk about is we have certain things called principles. Let me see. Oh, the other thing I want to mention to you, too, is that you're going to want to know these roof types, okay, these roof types. Uh, I can think of all different places in Sacramento in which these happen to be located uh, of different kinds um, Flat roofs. If you want to know where they are, all you really have, and you want to see them on top of a house, all you really have to do is go down Howe Avenue, make a right on Cottage or on El Camino, and you'll see houses that are down there that were built with uh, flat roofs. The problem with a flat roof, just so you know, and why people don't necessarily care for them, is that, and it's a cheap, it's a cheap, inexpensive way of fitting the ro- finishing the roof off. It's a way of sa- saving lumber. The problem with them is the fact that in many, many cases you can have where water collects up on top. And especially if you have that added to that where you have trees or something around there that are getting the drains clogged up, what will end up happening is that water gets up there, and you don't think much about it, but water weighs something around, I believe, about eight pounds per gallon, I think, roughly. So, you know, you start putting up 40, 50, 100, 200 pounds of water on top of that roof, and the next thing you know, the whole roof will collapse. And in fact, uh, I have a friend of mine that's the insurance, in the insurance business, and uh, a number of years ago, he had a client that uh, had called him one morning, right after they had a, a pretty big rain, and he says, you know, Glenn, he said, you know what? He said, the roof on my building collapsed. And he knew that, you know, he knew Galeno. They were friends, and they knew each other. And he said, uh, he said, why? He says it's a brand new building. So the first indication was that maybe the builder did something wrong when they put the roof on there. Okay, this was like an office building. I think it was three or four stories. Well, anyway, in that particular case, if the builder had made a mistake, the concept would be: you go back to not the builder, but the roofer had made a mistake. You go back and sue the guy. Okay, But anyway, when they started to investigate it and look at it and get the insurance adjusters out there, what they basically found out was that apparently the drain pipes that were in the roof on the sides were stuffed with beer cans. And from what they could tell, probably in the summertime, some kids had gotten up there, sat on the roof at night, drinking, and stuffed the cans down the pipes, What happened is, is as it rained, those gutters that the roofer had put on there were built so that they would take that water and bring it from the roof down. Since they couldn't be able to handle that water, that roof now became something called a swimming pool. If you look at the amount of water that comes in at the weight of eight pounds per gallon, it actually starts to weigh a lot, and the next thing you know, it starts to collapse that roof. And what happens is it's almost like the World Trade Center. In fact, that's why the World Trade Center came down the way it did, is every time a floor drops, it adds more weight as it comes down. So before you know it, that top floor is sitting on the first floor. So roofs are, especially in commercial buildings, are a real pain in the neck. Flat roofs are. Uh, I worked out at McClellan, and the hangar we had out there had flat roofs. And every single solitary year that I was out there, all those years, we always had building contractors out there trying to fix the roof really big problem. Uh, There are other kinds of roofs, gable roof, hip roof. This is something you would see as a barn. This roof heres I've seen this up in a house up where I happen to live. The problem with this is it has a flat spot on top of the roof here. Uh, You'll also see other kinds of roofs. Uh, You really get concerned with things like the pitch of the roof and the kind of material on the roof. For example, if you're in Lake Tahoe, And you're appraising a house, you're going to find out that they don't put shake roofs on there. They'll have metal. The reason why is because they want that snow sliding off the roof. They don't want it staying up on top of the roof because just like the water, it starts adding weight. So you'll have other kinds of wood materials. You're also concerned about the slope. Anything that can get that snow off the roof quicker, the better they like it. Okay, so let me see here if I've got everything together. The next thing we next thing that we want to talk about fairly quickly here is the, what we call principles. In other words, economic principles that we use when we are appraising a property. And I'll just mention them briefly. Okay. The first thing is something called supply and demand. We throw this term around a lot. And I'll just read out what it is. Let me see if I can get this sort of centered here. It says, the principle of supply and demand shows why location is important. The principle of supply and demand states that as supply of land decreases, the value of the land increases because more people are competing for the desirable land. So they give you an example. They say, for example, if you live next to the Pacific Ocean, it's expensive because the land is scarce. But the point here is the fact that supply and demand takes its look in a lot of different ways. As we consume more land, like they talked about in the Pacific Ocean, or, you know, close to some kind of a thing that's really nice to be at, as that land is consumed and used and built on and bought, since there's less of it, the value of the land goes up. Also, we could say supply and demand is affected because of the fact uh, when we have, for example, we're always talking about people moving from the Bay Area in Los Angeles to Sacramento. That's a migration, people coming in here. When those people come in, we have an influx of people. We don't have an adequate amount of supply to meet their needs, so therefore those people will tend to bid the prices of the houses up. Okay. And because we're always running, because real estate can't turn on a dime, in other words, it takes time to build a house, it takes time to get things going, what ends up happening is, is that it usually runs in these great big huge cycles. In other words, the people migrate into the community. There's a lack of supply of houses. They start bidding up the price for the limited amount of supply. In the meantime, the builders all of a sudden say, hey, you know what? There's a demand. People are paying more houses. They run out. They start building houses. But that doesn't happen right away. I mean, if you started today and had the crew and everything else in place, I would venture to say it would be very difficult to build a house unless it than maybe five or six months, you know, a decent house unless it had been some kind of manufactured house because of the site improvements and everything else. And then, of course, if, if that only meets the need immediately, you may find out that you now have to bring land into production. So now you're talking about off-site improvements. So, in other words, supply and demand, how, if people are leaving or they're coming in, affects the value. Uh, there's other parts of the United States out back out near in Pennsylvania where they had a steel industry was the major thing, or Flint, Michigan is another one. If you watch uh, Roger Moore's TV shows, Roger and Me, uh, where the industry, which was the car industry, which was in Flint, Michigan, because of the cost of labor and, and materials and doing business there, those companies folded up and moved the production someplace else. Because that employment left... There were nobody not enough people there that lived there that could afford to buy the houses. So now all of a sudden the houses get boarded up, they go into foreclosure, they sit there and the area becomes an eyesore. Why? Because we had we had people moving out, not in but out. So supply and demand and what affects it are really important. Principle of change is another one. Principle of change is that the the real property is constantly changing. Value is influenced by changes in such things as population size, shopping centers, schools, colleges, freeways, so on and so forth. So the idea is that the property never really you know, is never stable. I'm sorry, not, not stable, but it's never, you may not realize it, but your house every day is going up and down in price. You may not realize it. It's going up and down because of supply and demand changes, because of affordability, because of interest rates, because of a lot of things. Okay, Uh, let me see. The next thing is they talk about here, they talk about this particular cycle, just so that you know about it. We look at this cycle, by the way, in a lot of different ways. We talk about it, uh, we as human beings, you know, we talk about our life cycle. We are born, we mature, we die. We talk about it in products. You know, for example, we've had, you know, black and white TV sets at one time were popular. You know, they grew, they matured, they died, okay? You know, we have that with cars, we have it with a lot of different things. So the concept here is just to say, initially there's development, there's a demand for property, it continues to go up, it hits a certain point where it matures, and then whatever number of years go by, it finally will decrease in value. We see this happen in a lot of different places. Cities like Sacramento, and it's true throughout the United States, you can go to certain cities, you know, cities, downtown areas, in which they at one time had, you know, where people lived and they worked. We had nice little suburban areas. People moved out of the community. The area started to go down. In fact, that's one of the biggest issues that they try to do with a lot of cities is how do we bring the city back? You know, some of them have been very successful at it, and some of them have not. So that's that concept. Uh, The next concept they talk about is conformity. And conformity brings itself up in two different ways. The principle of conformity states that the maximum value is obtained when a reasonable degree of building similarity is maintained in the neighborhood. So if all the homes in the area are similar, not identical, just similar in nature, you know, three-bedroom, two-bath, three-car garage, whatever it happens to be, not identical, the words single family, two family, but they're you know similar. The maximum value of the real property is created. The word similar is key. If the tract homes are identical, as if they were all made with the same cookie cutter, the maximum value is not present. Okay, what I really like to look at is in the series of conformity. You know, you look at this in a lot of different communities, and we talk about this. Like for example, if you're going to build a house, or you're going to improve your home that you live in, you see articles like this in the newspaper all the time, they'll say, make sure you do not over-improve the house. So you can basically sit there and say, you know, you know, the houses in the area, typically almost all of them, happen to be about 15 to 1,800 square feet. No matter whether there's two or single, you know, one-story, two-story, that's about what they are. They typically all have a two-car garage. If all of a sudden you build a house or you put a second story on the house and you take your house from 2,000 to 4,000 square feet and you put a three-car garage in there, that might be nice for you, but the appraiser is going to say, you know, who's going to buy it? You know, it'll be, nice, it'll be a nice added value for the same people that would buy that house, the other houses, but you're not going to get the same return on your money. Conversely, we talk about conformity, too, because we also talk about the, the, the quality of the home. So, for example, if you happen to have a home and you're in an area that we always say that the best way to make real money in real estate is buy the worst home in the best area. You know, so you go down the street and if you see a home that you know that you can get for a really low price because it needs to have work, or it's, and and the rest of the homes are really nice, then by bringing it up to this, making it similar to the other homes in the community, you can get a lot of money for that. Okay, in other words, that's where you're going to get the biggest rise of value. So, in other words, that's conformity. Contribution is another principle. Uh, Principle of contribution states that the value of a particular component is measured in terms of its contribution to the value in the property. Consequently, costs do not necessarily equal value. Example of an apartment building produces a 10% return to investors. A $50,000 investment in a swimming pool without an equal $50,000 or $5,000 increase in rents. You're not really making any money, and we see this all the time. Again, going back to what I was just talking about, uh, when you talk about putting in, you read these articles about, hey, I'm going to redo my kitchen, and I want to put granite countertops in there, and people will say, okay, that may be a good idea, but keep in mind that everybody else in the community doesn't have granite countertops, so you may not get the biggest bang for your buck, okay? Same thing like putting in an addition on. Do you really get a good value of return, Okay. We also have a couple other things, which is called the principle of substitution. This is a really interesting one. Uh, it says, under the principle of substitution, a buyer will not pay more for a particular property if it costs less than a similar property with the same equal utility and value. This is something, as a real estate agent tries to emphasize to clients, that you'll go out to get a listing on a house, and the people will say, you know, my house, I have... Uh, put this in, I've put that in, you know, I've, I've repainted the house, I put new carpets in, I did this, that, and the other thing to it to improve it, okay? I'm not talking about the big improvements. I mean, so they, wanted, they say that I should get more money for the house. And what's going to sit there is you as a consumer are going to look at the two houses and you're going to say, okay, I'll pay about the same for the other house, maybe a little more, but not significantly amount. You know, what we start to do is that people start to look at the house of their very similar nature as more, more like a commodity. And when I say commodity, it's like when you get ready to buy milk. I mean, some people don't care whether it's crystal milk or, or another brand. They just see it as milk or they see it as sugar. That's a commodity, or we do with fuel, gas. You know, we'll look at something and say... Chevron wants three dollars for a gallon of gas, and Union 76 wants three dollars and ten cents. I'll go to Chevron because we look at them as just being a commodity. Okay. Uh, principle of regression just means that the value of the property is continuing to go up as 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 the property goes up, so goes your price. As the property values in the area go up, up so goes your property. So, for example if you have an area that is tends to be blighted you know like in a lot of cases here in sacramento what we tend to do is we look at areas that for whatever reason have gone down in value and so what happens is is maybe the some government organization or the city or the county decides to turn that around to designate that as an area to make some kind of improvement so what happens is as the houses go in that help improve the uh, value of that area, so goes the other houses. So the concept is, is as as the houses around you go up in value, they tend to pull you up with them, okay? Even if you've not done anything, just because of the fact that the other houses are going up. Conversely, we see the other thing that happens. We see uh, th- that's regression, Uh, I'm sorry, regression, by the way, let me, I'm getting this out of whack here, but the regression is is as the neighborhood goes down, so does your house go down. So that's the reason why a lot of us nowadays are concerned about the neighborhood. You know, we're not going to put a lot of money in the house if we see that whatever we put in, you know, the house every year keeps going down because of crime, because of, you know, maybe it's all non-owner occupied, it's a rental area, nobody really cares about their property, so that's, that's what we're talking about. Okay, so we've talked about all of this. Uh, I think pretty much uh, the the last thing I want to do very quickly before we end the class is I want to take you to the Office of Real Estate Appraiser website. We don't have a lot of time, but what I'll do is I want to get you there so that you know that this information exists. It's under your website links here. It's underneath the uh, appraisal basics. Right here. Okay. And I'm going to take you right here to the thing called the Office of Real Estate Appraisers. It's a a state of California. (coughs) Did I click that? Let me see here. Uh Aha, maybe it's not working today. I think. Okay. Let me try one more time. All right. Oh, I know what's happened. Hold on a second here. I've got it open down here. Okay. This again is a state website. A couple of the things that you may want to know about is, for example, if you want to find an appraiser, you want to find out about OREA, which is Office of Real Estate Appraiser. There are a couple of things that you need to be aware of that are changing, um, you know, as time goes by. Uh, let me see, um, educational requirements. Which are right here. For example, if you want to know what the new educational requirements are going to be in 2008, you click this button here. It'll take you to what those requirements are. This is something that you're going to be required to have for your license. I just want you to know that this happens to be here. Uh, another thing that I want to show you is that you may be concerned about your licensing requirements. What do I have to have in order to? What do I need is to have a real estate appraiser license? So I'm going to go down here, and I think this is well laid out. Let me see if I can blow this up at all. View, see if I can make it a little bit larger. I think I can. What they've done here, very quickly I'll go through. This is as of 1998. Of course, this stuff is subject to change because of the new changes in in 2000. But what they do is they have the date, they have the kind of license you're going to have, so you have a trainee license, a residential license, a certified residential license, and a certified general license. What they do down here is they tell you what the uh, requirements are for college units. Okay, Then they go down here and they tell you what the hours are, what, how many hours you have to have. So what I want you to realize is that you know, if you're going to be just a trainee working for somebody, you have a thing called the trainee license, but you don't, you know, the idea is that you're working underneath their guidance, underneath their license. If you want to sign off your own appraisals, you're going to have to have a minimum of 2,000 hours of acceptable appraisal experience. Then it goes up after that, depending upon the level of licenses and the kind of property that you want to appraise. Uh, down here, uh, it tells you, talks about the exam exam that you're going to take, and down here, this is a scope. What scope means is what in the world can you really appraise with that license? So, for example, here it tells you if you're a trainee, you must work underneath the technical supervision of a licensed appraiser. Uh, maybe assist on any appraisal within the scope of the practice of the supervising appraiser, meaning you, you know what that appraiser is licensed to do. Uh, the second level is may appraise non-complex one to four unit residential property up one to million. up to transaction value of one million. I'm glad that they've made that higher. Okay, so what I want to do is just to give you a place that you can go to, that you can get this information. I think it's very very important that you're aware of that. Uh, you may be taking these classes and maybe never think about becoming an appraiser. And then later on you do, and what you want to do is know that you can go there to get that information. Remember, that is the Office of Real Estate Appraisers or Appraisal. With that, I think we're pretty close to the end. I want to thank you for watching. The next time that we meet, we'll be talking about the different types of appraisal methods. And with that, have a nice day, and we'll see you back here the next time.